Hello and welcome to Knitcast with me, Marie Urshad. Well, my special guest on this edition is Woolly Wormhead. Hello, Woolly. Thanks for joining me. You're in uh, Italy at the moment, aren't you? Hi, Marie. Yes, we are. Yes, in Italy, central Italy at the moment. Fantastic. And what's the weather like there? Well, the last few weeks it's been nice and springy because it, we're a good month ahead of the UK here in spring. But this morning we woke up to snow, so it was a bit of a freak weather this morning. White blanket everywhere. I know. I would see. I was expecting you to tell me that it was sort of amazingly sunny and warm because it was Italy. <laughs> Instead, it sounds. Well, it cold. should be. It should be. It has been the last couple of weeks. Yeah. We've been hitting nearly twenty degrees in some days, but um, this morning we had snow. <laughs> <laughs> but all melted away now. Oh, it's gone now. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Just to start off with. I have to talk about your name because it's fabulous and I, I know there's a story behind it and obviously it's it's not your given name, your your first name is Ruth, but where does Woolly Wormhead come from? Where did you come up with that? Well, Woolly is something that people have often called me anyway because I've always had a love of wool since I was a little child. I've always said it's my favourite fibre, I love it and I get my hands in it wherever I can. And Wormhead actually comes from my hair because I have dreadlocks. When I used to teach, I used to teach... Um, Arts and textiles in full time in schools to for the age range of 11 to 18 year olds, and I had a tutor group in an all girls school, and they nicknamed me Wormhead. So it was my ex students that called me Wormhead. <laughs> Affectionately, they were being nice about it, but it kind of stuck. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. You see, you've you've been knitting since a child. Who taught yeah. you? My mum taught me when I was about three years old. Yeah, and that was just it for you? It was, as you say, you've got this love of wool. Yes, that was it. I just can't remember a time I've ever not knitting, really. I mean, she taught me crochet as well, and I do I dab a little bit, but I am primarily a knitter, and I used to knit clothes to my dolls, and I knitted a doll once when I was about six, and it just went on. And my first jumper I knitted when I was nine years old for myself. Wow. How long did it take you? I can't remember exactly, probably about a month. I do remember that I needed help from my mum because it was it was a satin sleeves, it was very plain, but I needed help from my mum picking up the stitches around the neck for the collar. And I do remember that I finished it and I was ready for that bit on that Christmas Eve and I kept nagging my mum saying, Mum, can you help me put up stitches? And she wouldn't do it for about another week because it was Christmas and she was trying to organise Christmas and cook dinner and there's me going, but I want my stitches picked up. <laughs> so... Probably took a little bit longer than I um, wanted it to, but yeah, it fit fine. Mm. And that was from a, a pattern, not from your own pattern? That was from a pattern, yes. I designed my first jumper when I was 14 for myself, so I sat down to do all the math. It was a raglan fitted rollick that I did for myself then. But I used to work to school, actually. Wow, you sat down and did the math. See, I still find maths even in a knitting capacity, a bit terrifying, really, because I've always been so bad at it. But that, that wasn't an obstacle for you. No, I like maths. Well, I must admit, when I was doing my A-levels, my parents wanted me to go off and do a maths degree because I did maths and further maths A-levels. But I didn't want to go and do a maths degree, so I didn't. <laughs> but that's what I was, it was something I was very good at, mm. uh, as well as art and engineering and things when I was at school. And what did they think about your knitting? They always embraced it, or yes, they have. I mean, they, when I was younger, they did push me a lot more into trying to have a proper career. I think as many parents do, but no, they've always encouraged me creatively. I think when I decided that I wanted to go back and do my art degree, which is when I did my textile degree at Goldsmiths, 
there was some caution. I don't think they were too happy because I'd I tried to go the sort of uh, route of I, I trained as an electronics engineer and I worked in engineering for a few years and then I kind of decided that I'd had enough and I chopped and changed a few things because I wasn't happy what I was doing. So I think they just saw it as another kind of, oh no, what's she trying now? But when they realised I was much happier and I've had a career in it since and they're much more encouraging with it now, much more supportive. I suppose a lot of people don't tend to think of something like engineering as being creative, but it is. Oh, it is. It's very, it's very logically creative. It's quite different to being an art creative. Yes. It's a different side of your brain works, but it is because um, you have to sit and analyse problems, you see. Um, and problem solving is a big part of creativity because you, you do have to kind of get past certain hurdles and work out how something's going to work. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking, just even with, with knitting, yes. A lot of the time you might be looking at something thinking, right, I want to, do, want to go from A to Z. How am I going to do this? But yes, as you say, it's it's one of those things that it's it's a slightly different process, but there's part of it that sort of goes hand in hand. The problem so. Oh yes, I think so. I think it's a very helpful thing to know for designing as well that part of the designing process is eliminating things that don't work. Yes, with the design process, actually, I want to ask you about hats first of all because that's what you know fans of yours tend to associate you with hats and I know you've probably been asked this a thousand times but why hats in particular why, why do you like them so oh. much oh I've always loved hats um always loved hats I used to um one of my very first hats that I had myself was a wool beret that I used to wear to school which I got teased and bullied for something rotten so I then promptly went out and got another one <laughs> when they when they stole it from me because it just didn't put me off wearing hats at all and it's just something I've always done um, in terms of that sort of accessory for me I like I like the fact that you could be wearing something very because I'm I'm not an outward dresser as such I'm a very sort of tomboy lots of that combat and jeans very simple but I love the fact that I can just put on a hat on my head that can be any color any style and it just makes something of itself it just it's there to be noticed. I don't think hats should be just practical. I like the fact that they're little pieces of art in themselves. That's what they are to me, I think. I mean, there's lots of other aspects to hat knitting and designing that I love as well. I mean, my textiles degree um, was focusing on 3D. I'm a, I'm a sculptor with fabrics and fibres. So I find that a hat of any practical garment is the most sculptural thing you can wear because it's virtually sort of 380 degrees. Well, it's not quite, but... It's much more um, sculptural than any other garment that you can wear. It does allow you to come off in many different diverse directions. As I think of some of my earlier hats, especially my freeform pieces, kind of demonstrate that you can just have these sort of odd pieces just coming off in different directions. So I like the sculptural aspect that a hat gives me. So I do tend to focus a lot on shape with hats and getting form rather than it just being um, a regular hat with just a little bit of stitch detail. But also I like them for the techniques aspect. You can try out a new technique and you can mix different techniques in a way that is, makes it interesting without it being laborious or too challenging because they're small and they're over and done with fairly quickly if you don't get on with it. But you can still try it. You can still experiment with it. Yes, I mean, it's. I suppose it's kind of like, I'm, for example, I'm just starting out um, doing cables. I mean, I've been knitting properly nearly 10 years, but I've still strayed away from them because... They've always been a little bit kind of scary, I suppose, which sounds silly, but sometimes that's just how it is. But as you say, if you're doing something like a hat, 
that can, depending on how much time you've got, take you a few days, as opposed to, yeah. say, a whole month for a sweater. Yeah. And that makes such a difference. It does. I mean, if you're, if you're trying cables for the first time, a big jumper's worth of cables is intimidating, but it's less so on a hat, on a smaller item. Mm. And now, of course, you've got, um, yes, let, let's talk about the new book, which is out, uh, Twisted Woolly Toppers. And that's uh, got an emphasis on, interestingly enough, cables, bias and twist. So uh, tell us a bit more about the patterns in this book, because it's a collection of 10, isn't it? When I actually thought about this collection, or the idea originally came to me, I wanted to tackle the B shape, the half dome shape, which is a fairly standard hat shape. It's still a very common shape, but it's not one I use much because I don't find it very sculptural. So I originally sat down to embellish this shape to see what I could do with it. But as I was developing the designs, more and more cables and twists and bias things came through. So the twisted toppers, which were going to be hats with a twist or hats with a difference, became more literally hats with a twist of cables and twisted stitches. Now, um, some of the designs I can't pronounce. (laughs) (laughs) Italian names. Yes. Make sure I get my pronunciation correct as well. (laughs) Now, my favourites of them, well, although it is quite hard to have a favourite. Actually, I've got two favourites from this because I like the um, Aeonium. I have no Aeonium. Sorry, what was that? Aeonium. 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 Thank you. <laughs> That's not Italian. Well, oh. it's probably Latin, actually. Right. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know any Latin, so that gets me off that. <laughs> but that's got an amazing kind of crisscrossing design. It was particularly the, um, I suppose, when you get to the crown of the hats, it's just, oh, it's just amazing because they just seem to start so, I suppose, looking like these sort of very thin cables, which are going underneath each other a bit like an open lattice but then when it gets right to the crown and they kind of cross over actually you're probably better at describing this than I am. <laughs> um, yes it is I mean it is the body of the hat um, is a lattice um, mm-hmm. with twist cables that cross over so you've got knit and pearl stitch crossing so that's what keeps the knit line continuous but yes as you say coming towards the crown the, um, the, 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 the visible knit stitches continue in their same pattern all the way in um, and actually in the pattern instructions you're twisting the cables right up till the either last or the second from last row before you finish the hat you're working all the way in so it keeps that pattern continuously spiraling and crossing right down to the very far tip. The clown on that was a challenge to work through and ripped it I don't know how many times taking it out because I wasn't happy with it because also when you get to a crown because you're trying to get a flat shape for a beret you you might have probably noticed this if you're working with cables but when you come out of cable into plain knitting the, the gauge kind of spreads because the cable draws in so trying to keep it flat and to stop any lumpy bits occurring was also quite tricky well it's got to in the end <laughs> Would you say this is kind of like for an intermediate knitter or should anyone just have a go at it? Because as you say, it is a small project. I think if, if, if people are happy just being able to twist stitches with or without a cable needle, I, I don't have a problem either way, um, then people can tackle it. I mean, when my test knitters work on this one, they said it was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. So it looks more challenging, but it's actually, it's 
a little bit fiddly on the last few rounds, as I say, when you're coming into that very tight bit on the crown. But it's not difficult, not at all. Yeah. It just looks, bark is worse than its bite, you could say. The other one that I like is um, Medici? Yeah, Medici. Medici, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's something about the yeah. kind of shape, and it's got these lovely sort of kind of arch-like triangles going around the side. Yes, yeah. That one, again, has got the twist um, lines, similar that come up, and they form these little pointed arches. And interestingly, I wasn't actually thinking, the, the local town here, and there are some photographs in the book, down here is classic Italian architecture. There's arches everywhere, pointed arches, rounded arches, every kind of arch you could want. And when I was sitting there designing that one, I wasn't thinking of them specifically. It wasn't until I finished it and we were doing the photo shoot that my model, um, Sylvia, who's um, a local girl, sort of just sort of set a book and I kind of went, oh yes. <laughs> I think I've been soaking in all these lovely arches and architecture and it, just, it came through in the design subconsciously, I think. I was going to ask about the pictures of the local architecture in the book, but it was just gorgeous. I particularly like, just because I, I love kind of uh, terracotta pots and mosaic pots, there were oh, some yeah. pots. <laughs> yeah. It was gorgeous. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, we were walking around the town doing the photos and I just had to photograph that. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily bear any immediate resemblance to any other shapes of the hat. And some of the other photographs you can see from the shapes of the doorways or the windows or the way the alleyways wind, where some of those shapes have kind of influenced some of the designs in the hats. And it's not obvious with the terracotta pots, but I think it just gives such a lovely atmosphere and it really soaks up the town. It really says this is what this town is about. That does also sort of draw me on to, um, I did ask uh, listeners for questions, but uh, I may have left it a little bit late because we, we only had one question. Oh dear. <laughs> But we are going to, at some point, do another podcast once I've sorted out how to do it, where hopefully we can get some more questions asked on a, a kind of a sort of call-in style show, which has been done before, but I thought yeah. I'd have a go at it as well. But I had a question sent to me by Lynn Parks. Her Ravelry name is El Nupermom, or something yeah. like that, yeah. on Ravelry. And what she wanted to ask was, where do you get the inspiration from for your designs? I mean, but is it from a number of sources? Yes, I think I just soak it up because I, I think in 3D. I don't think in flat surfaces. I, I'm very, I've got a very acute spatial awareness. So I notice buildings and spaces and how what people do with them. I think I just soak it up. Any kind of 3D shape that happens to be around, even if it's just the cars down the road, I just notice the way that all the lines come together and what shapes they form. And I think that's just, it, it goes into my head, gets absorbed, um, and it then comes out when I'm working. Rarely do I kind of look, see a shape or a form that I like and think consciously do I sit down and say, right, I want to use that shape, that element into this design. I don't really work like that. I don't have sketchbooks. I don't plan them all ahead. I work organically. Um, and I think that's, that's how it comes through. But yeah, it's definitely from the things I see around me, just the shapes and textures I see around me. That's not a very exciting answer, is it? <laughs> it's your answer. Well, I think it's quite interesting anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, I just find it interesting to talk to people about this and the podcast. It's always about the creative process for me, because I just always find it really interesting to hear where people's different approaches to it. And sometimes it's kind of people's approaches aren't all that kind of different. You know, I think we are all influenced by lots of different things. And as you say, I mean, 
I think I'm very jealous of your spatial awareness. My spatial well, awareness actually, is not terrible. many people have very good spatial awareness. Actually, I could, um, I, when I was teaching, I did my my t- uh, my postgraduate in teaching. I specialised in different learning styles because it's something that fascinated me. And um, most people don't have very good spatial awareness. But I'm also a kinesthetic learner, which is also um, not very common. And kinesthetic learners learn by doing. I think that's why I work much better when I'm working organically on the needles then that's when my best stuff comes through. But you tend to find that people that are quite good, especially are also very good with the hand, but there'll be kinesthetic people. It's kind of a little brain link somehow that works there. Hmm. Quite interesting stuff. Most, about 65 to 70% of the population are visual learners. <laughs> yes, I'm, I, I do not, I have no idea where I fit into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, visual, visual learners are people that soak up information from pictures, which is why... Photography is such a powerful thing for modern society because, you know, you, you can sell things by the suggestion of a photograph because people will soak up that message from that image much more yes. than they would do from other sources. I'm now wondering if I'm neglecting the book again. So if we go back to some, <laughs> <laughs> we go back to some of the uh, designs. And uh, an interesting thing is the, the patterns. They're, as we say, there are 10 designs, but it's not like one design's for babies and one design's for is for men they're all kind of written in different sizes aren't they oh absolutely yes i i am i i think it's so important to include as many sizes as possible even in small garments like hats um a bit of a pet peeve of mine is one size fits all for hats because it doesn't um, yes <laughs> um i i've got a huge head unfortunately so i know that most hats don't fit um, <laughs> I, with my dreads i have a 25 inch head which is a bit huge um so it's i like to size the hats but also I don't think that fun hats and quirky hats should just be for babies and children why shouldn't adults be allowed to wear them too so that's why I kind of try and size it as much as I can within the limits of the pattern so that everybody can wear it should they want to well that's just great as you say you know well you, you've got the opposite problem to what I have if I try <laughs> oh you've got a very shop. small head <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been knitting a lot of the rolling beret all right yeah year. Yeah, because it's kind of like I've always liked berets and I've always meant to knit them. And I don't know, it was kind of weird. It was kind of like this year that I suddenly thought, right, you know, I'm going to have a go at this. And I kind of looked at a lot of patterns and it was just kind of, I'm going to sound slightly biased now, but it's, <laughs> it's more accidental than anything that I, you know, I looked at your rolling beret and that was the one that kind of worked for me really although I, I started doing the meat ended up doing the medium size and I've made about five of them I think just you know just this year it's a very kind of clear very easy to follow pattern and quite simple when you're knitting it you don't have to be constantly referring to something you can just get on with it really yeah you can but it's nice to have patterns like that that's right yes I mean my socks socks were always kind of like the uh sort of mindless knitting for me but but I kind of wanted to vary it a bit. So, you know, now I'm seeing how many berries I can knit. My target is 10. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you'd say yourself, you need more than just one hat, don't well, of you? Of course you do. You can never have too many hats. At the moment, I'm looking at brownie, which is, um, it's, a, it's a little bit like an ice cream to me, but like a bit of a, a wicker ice cream. It is. It's, like, it's kind of a cross between an ice cream and a walnut whip. <laughs> that's how people have described it yes and quite an interesting design that one because it, it, it uses more techniques than, than any of the others in the book 
because it's got some sideways knitting, which I love. Um, it's got some short rows. It's got some bias. It's got some cables. It's got a bit of everything in that one. Again, not overly complicated. It's just a few more things that you need to concentrate on. It's not a mindless knitting one. But when I when I designed that one and um, I posted a picture on my on the blog because the, the the child model is my son um, and the male model is my partner. And when I I posted a photo of Aaron wearing the brownie on my blog, everybody went, wow, that seems to be the most popular one, I think. It's got a few admirers. <laughs> oh. oh, is that somebody in the background? No, I've just realised the baby monitor's on. <laughs> oh, I wondered what that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're picking up in the background. <laughs> Okay. Um, tell you what, we'll go through the, okay. the other patterns that Aaron is modelling, because there's also yeah. Lolly. That's, um, that's quite a simple knit, really, that one. Um, with that one, I deliberately wanted to kind of not use the normal mass numbers for a hat. Because normally with a, a, a hat like that's got a kind of fairly, comes towards the, the crown, it's fairly fitted. You'd normally work on, say, multiples of four or five, but I worked on three because I wanted to have it a little bit different really to have I quite like the number three for designing with um I like odd numbers designing with um which is just one of my quirks I guess yeah. um so it's got three big chunky cables that come up that are fairly fitted and then you've got this lovely little kind of pixie kind of um, eye cord on the top yes it's it is a little bit like an well if you can imagine an acorn with cables on it <laughs> but it's got that yeah. kind of feel about it hasn't it it's a little kind of pixie hat nice quick knit as well because it's a chunky yarn or a bulky yarn so it's, um, it does knit up very quickly. Now he's also wearing a tinker which is tinker, it's yes. sort of I guess like a paper bag in a way in that it's got the kind of upturned little corners at the edge and that's yes, got yeah. that's got some kind of nice wiggly looking cables. Yes it's got all sort of zigzaggy cables all the way around it's 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 a very simple design. It's like a square flat top with a seam right across the top. So that one is a fairly mindless knitting. Once you get into the flow of where the zigzags are going, it's a very easy. It's only a six stitch, a six row repeat. Four, actually, no, it's six stitches plus six rows. So it's a very simple repeat that's just worked all the way around as a tube and then finished off at the top. Um, but it's great. I've actually, on my website, there are some photos of it in um, pink as well. So they did originally do it in pink and Sylvia modelled it, um, but they didn't come into the book. I just kind of just work with Aaron and the blue one because he looked very cute in it <laughs> but it can it can be um for adults as well it looks just as fun now another one uh, with Aaron modeling is and I think is this the um the free pattern is it and is it called a trikable or trickable or probably even tricable um yeah you can pronounce it how you like I, it, it was the, the, the name of it comes from try and cable but I pronounce it trickable because I think it sounds nice <laughs> Yes, that's um, that's a bonus pattern for early purchases of the book. Yes, um, and again, that's a lovely simple shape that's sort of um, with the cables running up the side rather than in the centre. So they give the structure quite a bit of support. Often, when you have a, a simple shape like that, the, the cables might be in the middle, and you've got nice soft edges with a reverse stocking stitch. But I did it the other way round because I I like the structure it gave, and the cables that are either side of the little peaks are mirrored, so it, it gives a nice kind of effect sort of flowing into the um the three she the three peaks there's also uh chevron the chevron beanie which has got uh, chevron cables running along it 
Yes, it's got a continuous cable that goes all the way around the hat. So it's um, it's worked in the round, and you have it's one of those where you have to move the stitch marker to keep the cable continuous, so there's no seam. But it's a nice big chunky cable. It's um, a very classic men's hat. Although one of my test nurses did it for her granddaughter in pink, and it looks just as lovely. So even then, again, it's another one that can be sized and used in different colours. It doesn't have to be a, a men's hat. Yes, I mean they're they're all really um, versatile. I also like the look of, um, is it uh, Frecia? It's Freckia. Freckia. Yes, in, in, in Italy they pronounce the C's as a K. It's like a Cheka. Right. It depends on which, but uh, I believe. <laughs> it's Freckia, I think, is the correct pronunciation for that one. Yeah. I mean, that's got some, well, to my eye anyway, sort of really gorgeous cables. They're almost kind of like um, heart-shaped. Yes, Frankia is, is Italian for arrows or archery. So they are like hearts, they're like upside down hearts, but also like arrowheads, sort of succession of arrowheads going up. And then as they come towards the crown, they get slightly smaller, which is where they seem more heart-like towards the top of the, the, like the, the, the lower tip of the heart. So they all come together to join at the crown. But that's where it got its name from. It's Italian for arrows or archer. Maybe. And then there is Floralis. Yes, Floralis. Yeah. Score! I that's said one properly. <laughs> that's a made-up word. <laughs> and it's a made-up word. Oh, <laughs> Doesn't really mean anything, that one. I just like it. <laughs> well, describe that hat to us. It's similar shape to a tinker. It's a nice sort of, um, it's a very simple tube um, with a flat seam. But it's got, again, off-centre cables. I like playing with this idea of, of like I like with the odd numbers, I like playing with the idea of things being off centre or not quite symmetrical. I mean, it is symmetrical, but it's to the side, not a line, but opposite towards one side. So you've got a lovely sort of nice big chunky cable and bobbles running down one side that's reflected on the other side. And you could have the cables the opposite way around if you wanted to. That would be quite easy to do to adapt the pattern. But I just sort of I like the way that the similar to trickable really. I suppose that the, the the cables. Because they're running up the sides of the hat, they, they, they give it strength and they make the points stand up a little bit more. Um, rather than It gives them a nice solid structure, which is something I really like about the way the cables work. They're nice and chunky. They're very structural things. And then the slayball, which looks like it's quilt, um, quite a nice bit of slouch in it. That was um, named by somebody on my blog because I couldn't think of a name for it. And slayball comes from slouchy cable. It's quite a nice mix. <laughs> Um, yes, that, that comes in two slouchy varieties. There is an extra slouchy that you can do that fits out of the yardage given in the book, but I haven't got that photographed in the book. There's photos of that on my website. But it is, even if, even the not so slouchy, this is a nice slouchy beanie. And that's got fairly wide flat cables with panels of moss or seed stitch. But as the cables twist, you've got smaller cables inside them. They're kind of like little lines that travel. It's not one big yes. twist. It's got little small ones kind of doing the travelling. So it's kind of a nice sort of small detail that you don't often see. Now, I think we come to the uh, the last one now, uh, Turbine, mm-hmm. which, again, has got this gorgeous um, spiral, which goes, I don't know, it's just really, really kind of just very interesting. The way it, it's kind of like, um, I can't really say a three-cornered spiral, that doesn't make sense, but there's kind of like three strands to it. Three-legged spiral, yes. I think you say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, a three-legged spiral, like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, and the background on that, is that moss stitch or is that just pearl? No, that's reverse stocking stitch, yeah, it's just fairly plain. Yeah. 
I mean, you could substitute a, a, a moss stitch if you wanted, although it might get a little bit fiddly with the shaping because the, the, the spirals wouldn't stand out as much. I mean, the nice thing about having reverse stocking stitches a background for cables, it really makes the cables jump much more. Um, and that's what I wanted with that one. I mean, when I had the original idea, when Twisted Woody Toppers was just going to be a book of slightly different beanies, that was one of the original concepts I had in my mind, turbine. Again, it's this number three, nice odd number that comes through, um, working towards something that's very even and fitted. And the spirals all join in the middle and they're all nice and flat and they're neat very evenly and they're decreased um, in such a way so that it does fit very firmly at the crown. So they're kind of, they're quite head-hugging, the spirals. Do you, I mean, obviously you've, you've designed, well, you, to me, you, you've designed so much. Do you have a favourite design? Oh, no. Or overall or out of the book? Or, I don't think I've even got a favourite in the book, actually. No. Yeah. I, I, there are lots I like for lots and lots of different reasons. I do have some, not favourite such, but some that mean more to me than others, I guess. Some of the designs that I'm more attached to or more fond of because there might have been something that happened in the process or something that... Yes. A, a penny dropped along the line somewhere and I kind of, the design might have changed from what it was meant to be and it turned into something much more wonderful than I thought it was going to be. So it's, it's, I'm fond of it for that or it might be because I, I discovered something about a technique that I wasn't aware of when I was designing it. But there aren't any that stand out as being an exceptional favourite, I don't think. Whenever I work on hats, I tend to work on a few at a time. Um, there'll often be three or four designs that might be related um, so working on a collection of 10 is sort of a fairly natural progression from that. But whenever I work on them, whenever I'm working on this group of hats, there'll be one that I kind of be more excited about. And it's normally the ones that are more sculptural and normally end up being the least popular. <laughs> I've kind of noticed um, that the hats that I seem most attached to or most proud of from a sculptural point of view tend to be the least popular um, to the people that um, knit them or buy the patterns. It's just something that's quite interesting. So mm. maybe that's why I don't have favourites because I've tried to talk myself out of it and just not have favourites because then I don't get disappointed <laughs> when nobody else likes them. I wanted to ask you about, um, and I always mispronounce this because I want to call it Merit. And of course, it, I assume it's Merry, the mystery berry, because I was just interested as to the, the story behind that. Yeah, I think pronounce it Meray. I think it fits, yeah, it fits in the very. Um, that was something, that was a design that I actually had in the, in the pipe work for a while and then I decided that I, I thought I might try a mystery cowl and I actually kind of discussed it with um, the people on my ravelry group quite openly um, and just sort of said to them, what do you think, shall we do one, how do you want it to work and we kind of worked it out together really. I mean I had the design there in my mind, I just needed to finish it up. Well, it was already swatched and mostly worked anyway. One I was probably going to self-publish. But it just seemed to work for what we were trying to do. And Mystery Cow, um, this was November 2008, turned out to be really, really popular. And that's, um, sorry, and, and a cow, that's a knit-along where yes. a bunch of people all knit the same item. It is, yes. We do run quite a few knit-alongs on the Ravelry group, but most of them aren't mysteries. We normally kind of select a hat and we kind of knit it. But, yeah, the Mystery Cow was um, a, a new thing. And we, we talked about it and everybody seemed to love the idea. So I started adding the pattern on instalments um, and seeing how it went. And it turned out to be incredibly popular. Everybody loved it. Um, so much so that I did another one, November 2009, just gone. That was a paid for one. We did the Mare free because 
I didn't know how it was going to work. It was a new thing. I'd never done it before. And I didn't want to charge people for something that could be a flop. Um, but this year we did another one. I had two patterns to choose from. And again, that turned out to be just as popular. Everybody loved it. It was great. Talking about your Ravelry group, but I suppose in, you know, with blogs and things, you do get to kind of connect directly with your audience, really, with the people who are buying your patterns. Oh, yeah. I think that's something that's really important. I don't like to distance myself from them at all. Those people are going to go and buy my pattern and knit my work. I want them to be able to have a really good experience. And I also want them to tell me what doesn't work. Give me some feedback on it. Um, I think that's one of the really good things about working this way, by having a blog and being open on forums, is that you, you can interact with people and take all the good with the bad and produce something better out of it. I know you wrote a post about um, nitpicks oh, yes. and the uh, <laughs> the uh, one dollar ninety nine patterns because yeah. it's that kind of thing. I, I know people, I suppose perhaps non designers often wonder, you know, can you actually make a good living from being a knitting designer? I know the answer to this. Not often. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Not often. Yeah, um, it's very very hard. I don't do too badly. Um, I mean, before I start saying that I support our old family, I suppose it's quite a good idea to put in the background. See, people that aren't familiar with our lifestyle, we live very, very simply, um, which means that we can live very economically as well. Um, we don't have mortgages or high rent. We, we, we travel, we live on communes, we use um, shared equipment and resources. So our, our outgoings are very, very low. It's pretty much just fuel and food, really. Um, but what I earn does, our family um, my son and my partner um, we, we do okay we um, so to me that's I, I've I've succeeded in doing what I want to do I make a living out of knit designing but for the majority of people what I earn it would not be a living it's still quite poor compared to most other jobs and vocations really and it is very very hard in this business to make a living and I, I sit and try and wonder why sometimes I and mean, part of the problem is that creative arts generally aren't very good wage earners at all. Um, but also I think there's this kind of, because knitting is knitting and it's a shared craft and it's quite historical, sometimes it's very, very hard for some people to understand that there is somebody at the other end working for that, that's producing something that, you know, isn't necessarily doing it out of the goodness of the heart. I mean, I love what I do. I, I put my, my effort and passion into my designing, but it is also my job. And I think sometimes it's very, very hard to convey that, you know, I've put a lot of work into this and I would actually like some recompense for my time. It's a strange beast, really, trying to work hard. But there's, there's a lot of parts of the industry that really don't pay very well at all. There's there's a lot online at the moment. Designers are kind of, now that we're working independently in self-publishing, we are able to sort of choose where we publish, choose our income, and yes. empower ourselves a little bit more. That's right. I was going to say, it gives you, well, it gives you the control, doesn't it, if you're publishing it yourself. And, and I suppose, you know, with things such as being able to offer patterns via um, downloads, via the PDFs, yeah. again, you get to be in control of that rather than, say I don't know just some somebody else making money off it and you have to have a, a cut of that oh absolutely I mean the traditional business model for knit designing would be that your magazine or yarn company would pay you a one-off fee for your design which 
I mean, I wasn't in the business 20 years ago, but I'm told that the amount of money you get paid has hardly changed in the last 15, 20 years, really. But even then, it would not be anywhere near enough to cover your time that you've actually put into designing a garment. I mean, okay, I only work with hats, and I've been doing it for quite a while, and I'm fairly experienced and quite quick sometimes. For example, Freckia in Twisted Woolly Coppers. Um, I don't know how many hours in total I spent on that design. I laboured over that one because it was very hard to grade. Um, to actually get the hat in different sizes and it was very important to me that I did um, offer it in a number of different sizes and I probably spent a total of about three or four weeks the amount of hours I actually put into it a total of about three or four weeks um, and how much would the average person expect to be paid for a month's work that's and you look at it like that how much goes into a design and that's just for me I just do hats I don't work with large garments so you can imagine how much time and effort um, people put into designing so the traditional model for knitwear designers was falling apart at the seams in the sense that it's just now that we have more choices that we can publish and now that more publishers are waking up to the idea that, you know, designers are going to go their own way, they're not happy. Many companies now are starting to offer better choices for design. They're not um, expecting to buy the rights outright to a design. They're well aware that a designer wants to earn a better income from something. So things are changing in the business. It's working quite well, but it's very hard to be paid a good wage for the amount of time that you put into something. Yes, and obviously you've, um, Nitpicks are now offering, um, as I said, patterns for a dollar ninety nine, which is, um, gosh, how much is that? I'm trying to think with the exchange rate, maybe about one pound thirty or something. About that, I think at the moment. Yeah, that's about what it works out. Yeah, um, yes. I mean, the independent designer program, the IDP, is. I think they had best intentions when they launched it. I mean, they're a yarn company, and yarn companies traditionally would just buy the design outright, and they would normally give it away free with their yarn or put it into a collection that's there to sell their yarn. And the designer would never see any more of that design. You lose all rights to it. You've got no control over it. You just say goodbye when that happens. Yeah. And I think nitpicks of, of they're moving forward. I mean, all of the rights remain with the designer. It doesn't have to be a fresh design. It can be an old design just reworked in their yarn. They're totally happy with that, which is very good because a lot of companies want something completely brand new, specific to them, top secret and published, etc. The nitpicks have been very open um, and they are supporting designers' rights uh, very well. But a lot of people are uncomfortable with the price because that seems to kind of go against it completely because it's such a low price for a pattern. And it's when they um, put the call out for submissions, I thought about it and I thought, well, this is a step forward even if some people think it's a step backwards because the price isn't quite what people would hope to charge for a self-published design. Um, and the concern there is, of course, a lot of people then just presume that 199 should be what everybody charges. Um, I still think it's forward and that young companies are working on this. I think, it's, I think it's very good of them to consider these things. And the pattern that uh, you've put up with them is... I really like it, actually. Um, it's a limerick, and that's, well, to me, it kind of looks like a, a beret, but it's, again, it's very textured, the uh, sort of main body of it is very textured in seed stitch, and um, I think, again, with uh, an interesting spiral kind of cable yes, going around. Limerick is knitted on the bias, so you've got an emphasis of these lines of knit stitches that travel around, so it's not cables in this one, it's bias stitches where... 
you increase before a line and then decrease exactly after it. So it creates a kind of a natural swirl in the fabric rather than one that sits on the surface of the fabric, which is what a cable twist would do. Um, so that also slightly alters the structure. So if you were to wear it to the side, you would notice that these those lines would become more like prominent ridges. So it's a, it's a beret that could look quite different if you wore it slightly differently. It wouldn't just necessarily flop, it would kind of take on a different structure if you moved it round. You were saying about your lifestyle. Um, I mean, you're travelling around mainland Europe in a, a converted bus. Yes. And it sounds like you're keeping a fairly low sort of carbon footprint. Yeah, yes. Something like that. I mean, so that's clearly very important to you. Mm-hmm. As you said, that lifestyle. It is. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think PDF downloads are absolutely fantastic. I mean, sure, you need electricity to run computers, but you haven't got to worry about the cost of printing or delivery or any of the other things that go into producing a paper pattern. I mean, I still I have wholesalers that work with paper patterns because I think customers still want that and I want to try and offer as much as I can. But I do encourage people to buy PDFs um, if possible because it's just it's. I mean, everything that we do here, we do digitally. We're kind of like um modern tech hippies I guess you know because digital things don't take up much space and you don't need to worry about having discs burn all the time or having lots of things around you that you that you can just put into a small space that doesn't use as much energy just something I think that's um that's perfectly normal to us we were talking about your son Aaron he's he's going to be uh two very soon isn't he he is on the 13th of March he's going to be two years old I mean, what effect did he have on your, your knitting, I suppose, when you were designing? Oh, I always used to say, no, I'm never going to do baby hats. Adults should have all the quirky hats. Why should children have all the fun? So, of course, when Aaron was born, I started designing baby hats. <laughs> so he's, um, he's given me a different size range and a different age market, which is a good thing to sort of, you know, when, when you kind of limit yourself to a particular niche like hats or socks, it's sometimes quite good to broaden in other directions. So I think by offering children's hats, it's, it's, it's helped me. I've reached a different market. Um, and, of course, I've got a, a very cute and photogenic little model for free. <laughs> you do indeed. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. You say your models are Aaron, Tom, your partner, and yeah. um, Sylvia, whom I, I assume is a friend, or is she... Yeah, she's a friend here, but um, she she lives on the commune here in Italy full time. Um, she's done a lot of modelling for me. She's absolutely wonderful, and we're both encouraging each other with it because we have a language barrier. Um, she doesn't speak much English, and I don't speak much Italian, so we tend to communicate with odd words and with our hands <laughs> and objects. Um, and it's 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 helping us kind of. Yeah. She's she's doing better at learning English than I am at learning Italian anyway, but. Yeah. Um, Sorry, it's, it, it sounded so funny. You said you communicate by using odd words. And initially yeah. I was thinking, how odd are the words? <laughs> but just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you said her English is, is getting much better. Than her English is vastly improving compared to my Italian because I tend to cheat because Tom speaks Italian. So I kind of go, Tom! <laughs> do you ever model your designs yourself or do you always prefer to have to be, you know, I suppose the photographer? I am much happier being this side of the camera. I don't, I never have liked being the other side of the camera. I don't like seeing myself. I'm just one of those people that just kind of go, ugh. Um, plus also, because I do have a, uh, a large head and I do have a mop of dreadlocks, is that um, lot of the ha- it wouldn't do a lot of the hats justice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
between between dreadlocks, I've had very very short hair, and I think that suits would suit the hats better. So I used to wear a hat much much more, um, or I could get away with wearing more funky hats on. I pixie hats much more when I had short hair, but I don't think they work with dreads very well. Um, but no, I have, I did model for one of my patterns because nobody else would, um, which was a dread hat. So yes, I have done it occasionally. Oh, which pattern was that? Show my ignorance, really, because I should know. <laughs> it, that was igloo. It's kind of um, it's kind of a, a weird ear flap hat with a kind of big igloo tunnel at the back, so your hair's come out. It's a strange looking thing. Um, I rather like, and I do wear it. Um, but there was nobody else that kind of it was made to fit me originally. Anyway, so it, the hat was actually too big on anybody else, so I had to model it. <laughs> And what what's next? Because obviously the although you've got this book, your design process hasn't stopped. Obviously you're, you're working on the the next kind of thing. Yes, I yeah I was kind of hoping for a break after this book was finished because I feel like I've been working on it for ages. Well, it, it it's like any big project you get so engrossed that you come out the other side and you're kind of wanting a bit of fresh air really. But no, my my mind is churning out lots and lots of ideas. I do have um. Another book in progress, which I do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with, which is a technique book all about kitchen stitch. Uh, I'm I couldn't say when that will be ready right now because I've I've fallen out with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of hoping I'll get be friends with it again soon, and I, I'd like to be published this year. Too, but otherwise, I'm quite enjoying working on lots of little designs, one designs where I don't have to worry about a book as a whole. I can work on just one. Um, yeah, and have a bit of fun and creativity with just one rather than thinking of a bigger picture. I was going to ask why you had a love-hate relationship with the new book. Um, well, it is all about kitchen stitch. Um, kitchen stitch isn't just grafting stocking stitch, which is something that um, I think not everybody is aware of. Um, you can graft just about any stitch, and it can be very very technical it can be very geeky i mean when i teach um kitchen stitch at shows and events mainly during the summer in london and england um i can be there for three hours talking about the in-depth of what kitchen stitch actually is and how it's structured and what relationship it has with the other stitches around it and we can get very very technical um which can be quite exhausting and I think that's why I keep falling out with the book because I get so engrossed in it and I kind of discover some other technical aspect or a little penny drop that links up with this thing over there and then I come out of it after about a week and just I'm exhausted and then I walk away from it for another week and then it scares me it intimidates me because it is so um involved but also I think the thing that worries me is that um nobody's ever written a book about Kitchener before it's a whole, whole new thing. And I mean, my first book that I self-published, Going Straight, is a collection of hat designs that were all knitted sideways. So to get to perfect seam through finish and to have patterns continuous all the way around the hat, um, I had to learn um, much more about Kitchener Stitch there and then. And that book has still got um, the most tutorials in print on Kitchener Stitch to this date. It's still the most in-depth kind of... Um, information about Kitchener out there which is pretty big in itself so of course me being me just kind of went oh I'll just write a whole book about it <laughs> um and tell everybody how to graft just about every stitch under the sun um so that I think there's a lot of pressure from that because I think there's a lot of people sort of um a lot of people said they they can't wait for this book to come out and we really need something like this and that I I think that 
makes me melt a little bit really I kind of wilt and think oh my god what am I doing I can do it um I just kind of maybe it's too much of one side of my brain working <laughs> yeah maybe you just need to give yourself some space <laughs> as you say yeah I do I, I, I work on it for a few months and I kind of leave it for a few more months and um, just keep emailing my publisher saying um I've postponed the book <laughs> Do you know, I think it's like leaving um, a knitting project to marinate for a while. You know, if you become a bit frustrated by it and then you come yeah. back to it a bit fresh and yeah. suddenly what you saw as a challenge, you can see the solutions for. So it's probably a bit like that. Yeah. And if it feels like that, I just I have to keep walking away quite, well, not, not every day, but more than once. I have to go, and go away and think, no, I need to brew on that or that needs to brew by itself and I need to think about something else. I mean, it's not. There's no creativity involved in it as such, really. I mean, I'm I'm knitting samples, but there's no design work. There's no um, experimentation. It's all very um, left side of the brain, kind of you know, just sort of analytic all the way. Um, and I do need to balance it out with some playful fun with yarn. So um, it needs breaks. Yes. So that'll be published sometime in the future. <laughs> oh, what do you knit for fun, by the way? Well, don't knit for fun. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, um, I try knitting other things. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've got a, I've got a jumper on needles that's been on the needles for the last 18 months. That's meant to be for me. And it just kind of, I'm getting to a point on it where it's just a long body of stitches. And it's just kind of, it, it, I'm getting a bit bored with it. I've got a very short attention span. So I need to have quick things to work on. And I do. When I knit for fun, I just kind of pick up the needles and start playing around. And next thing I know, I've written a pattern. <laughs> it really is like that. I mean, what I really want to do at the moment is do some more freeform work. Um, my crochet spiral hats, I haven't done one, created one for about two years now, if not longer, actually. Um, and I'm at the really is kind of not worrying about writing it down that really is just getting the playful side of things and I'm, I'm itching to do that but I've got a few commitments for publication for other patterns that are going off elsewhere that all have to remain top secret so I, I need to finish those first before I um, abandon it all and have some time off. Oh thank you very much for your time today Woolly and <laughs> good luck with the uh, the new book. Thank you very much indeed I've enjoyed talking to you today. Well I'm Maria Shad and that was Nickcast. Thanks for listening.